Welcome to Making the Most of Time with me, Elliot Apple. I'm a financial planner and caregiver. To give you a little background, my dad was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer when I was 25. Our world was changed instantly, and it's been a constant state of change ever since. Since then, I've been learning about the intersection of money, health, and loss, personally and professionally. This is a place to explore money, loss, and grief. It's about making the most of time, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, physically, and financially. There are no taboo topics, no question is off limits. These conversations are for people like you, people who are about to lose a significant other, widows, caregivers, and anybody affected by a major health event. I'm glad you're here. So with that, let's start making the most of time. I had a friend and fellow financial planner, Danico Waddell, on the podcast today. She has a firm up in Seattle and has been a great resource and support for me. But I really love today's conversation because we go into depth about how to handle money in a relationship. We talk about everything couple related. And I really appreciated this conversation because Danica shares tips or exercises that couples can do together to get on the same page about spending how you can structure investments together if one person doesn't necessarily want to be as involved as the other. And what's great about this is Danica shares stories from her own life, from client lives, so you're going to get to hear it from a fellow financial planner and how she tackles it with others. I took away quite a few things from today's conversation, and I think you'll learn a lot. So with that, let's get into it. Danica, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Elliot. I'm looking forward to it. Danica, why don't you share a quick background about yourself? Sure. Yeah. My name is Danica Waddell. I am based in Seattle, Washington, and I have a small financial planning firm, just me and one other employee. Um, But we focus on primarily women who work in the tech industry. Great. So for today's conversation, we're going to dive into everything couple related and how to navigate finances as a couple. And I'm really looking forward to having this conversation with you because from my understanding, you like this sort of stuff. <laughs> Is that an anomaly? I guess it must be. I do like it. I think it's um, it can be very satisfying um, working with couples that aren't always on the same page, but that we find a way to to compromise. Yeah, and I, I should say, you know, I think there's those of us that enjoy that, but some of us are better at it than others, and some of us find that nerve wracking. And so, I'm looking forward to just distilling some wisdom down for people who maybe aren't on the same page or throughout life, maybe there's a change in circumstance and Mm -hmm. they need to approach finances differently or for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'll just say right out of the gate, I am not, I'm not perfect at this. So um, definitely have a lot to learn myself, but it is something that, um, that I enjoy. And I think we can provide a lot of value to our clients. Good. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing what you have to share and, distilling that knowledge down for anybody listening and what they can learn from you. So with that, maybe we can kick things off with just what common things do you see go wrong or what what problems often come up? And then from there, we can shift to how do we actually address those problems? Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a few things. I mean, the number one, you know, sort of overarching thing is that 99.9% of clients do not agree on everything related to their finances, right? Probably virtually impossible to agree on everything. Um, And I think one way that I like to go about it is um, particularly when working with clients who are relatively newly together as a couple um, is to really establish some groundwork 
at the beginning of a relationship or as early in the relationship as possible, right? So at whatever point you're starting to work with people to say, okay, let's create some some guardrails, whether that's around spending, whether that's around your investments. Um, it tends to be very often in, in the clients I'm working with, it tends to be around spending. Um, but I think establishing some very simple, you know, just sort of rules to govern spending and, and agreements so that everybody feels like, they have some agency, like I don't have to check with my partner every time I buy a cup of coffee, but that they also have some, I don't want to use the word control, but they have some um, say in larger purchases, right? So one of the things that I love to recommend to people is um, to set a dollar amount that, you know, anything above this dollar amount, you will consult each other and anything under that you know, you're free to spend. So that could be, you know, $50, it could be $500. I mean, that totally depends on your situation. But if somebody wants to spend something, go out and buy a pair of shoes or something, and it's under the limit, feel free. But if it's like, oh, I want to buy a new computer or a new bike, it's like, all right, well, that's, if it's over the limit, that's a conversation that you need to have together. Okay. I feel like the next natural question that a lot of people would ask is where where do you set that limit? And I know that's going to vary, but where where do you often see that for people? Mm-hmm. Um, hmm, very good question. I I would say <laughs> you know something in the like hundred dollar, couple hundred dollar range is pretty common because I think it's normal for people to expect. Yes, it can go out and spend a hundred dollars on a pair of shoes without having to check. Um, but I think, yeah, something in the couple hundred dollar, $500 range, I would say is fairly normal, but I mean, it completely depends on your situation. If your budget is super tight, it might be 50, it might be 25. Sure. <laughs> um, and then I think also there can be, you know, you don't necessarily want to spend whatever that number is a hundred dollars every single week. There might also be like a monthly guideline of, okay. Um, actually, my husband and I did this at the outset of our relationship, which we no longer do, but we sort of established this allowance amount. And it was like, I don't know, I think it was $500 a month. And again, it was just sort of like, okay, you can buy the coffees and the all the little day-to-day things that you want to do up to $500. And I mean, realistically, I don't think we monitored it super closely, but it was still a guideline, you know, sort of kept things in check a little bit where it wasn't like, oh my gosh, you know, you spent $3,000 last month on going out to lunch. Yeah. I like, I like that where you're setting a cap on it. Cause I could see where maybe you stay right under the limit on the individual purchases, but you do it a lot and mm-hmm. that could maybe create some friction mm-hmm. for couples. Absolutely. So you had $500 in your relationship up front. Are there other things either in your personal life or working with clients that those sort of rules helped in other spending circumstances? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So I think, you know, the things I just mentioned, sort of like the dollar amount where you consult with the other person and possibly a monthly spending number, I think things like that can work really well. Um, But beyond that, some of the conversations that I get into with clients are um, around, you know, sort of more consistent, ongoing things. It's not so much about like buying a pair of shoes or whatever, but it's maybe um, you have a hobby that's very expensive and that you want to spend $300 a month every month um, and sort of establishing those parameters also for people. So, you know, say one person in the relationship, actually I have a couple, one person in the relationship is very charitably inclined and it's a huge priority to her to give a pretty significant amount of their annual income to charity. The husband 
doesn't care about charity at all and really wants to spend his money on like sort of gadgets for lack of a better word. So, you know, like new audio equipment and hunting gear and things like Mm -hmm. that. And so, you know, again, that's totally fine to have those two different outlets for the people in that couple. But again, sort of one of the exercises we did was going through and establishing like, okay, what's the annual budget for charitable giving for the, on the wife's side, what's the budget for the husband to spend on gadgets. And then, you know, making sure that those two people felt like they had the outlet to spend on the things that they really prioritize, but also again, putting some guardrails in place. Cause it, you know, what you don't want to have is like the cup, one of the people goes out and buys the gadget of the month. And then the other person's like, Oh my gosh, another gadget. And it's like, well, that's, that's okay. That's part of our plan. And so I think that also is a piece of it is just um, for each person establishing what those sort of ongoing things are that are really important to them and making sure that they feel like they can do those things within reason. How would you set sort of a guardrail for couples where there's maybe a disparity of income or they're not treating the income the same way or deciding amount? I'm just thinking in that case, like you said, one is spending a significant chunk on charitable contributions. How do you get to that level? And is it just 50-50 or is it 75-25? Talk me through sort of how people should think about that. I think that really depends on who you're working with and what they're comfortable with. There are a lot of different ways to do it, right? Um, One other factor, though, that I think can really impact it is whether or not their finances are combined. So, you know, it's really easy if your finances are combined and your incomes are equivalent that's pretty straightforward, but that's not very common. So if your finances are separate and your incomes are very different, that's a situation where I think it's really helpful to sit down and go through the numbers. So we are working with another couple client who they're not married yet, but they're planning to get married. Finances are totally separate, but they have a lot of shared expenses. And when we sat down and looked at their cash flow for each of them, because they're different, and then we compared the shared expenses, it was very eye-opening because the partner that made a lot more money realized that they were actually putting in less to the joint expenses. And it was, you know, and they could see that the other person, you know, made a lot less, was putting more into the, you know, joint expenses, and then had a lot less flexibility because they make less. And so that was really helpful for the partner that made more to be able to say, oh, clearly I need to be, I need to increase, you know, relative to my income. And so for them, I think it ended up being a very proportional, you know, one person makes double the other person, they put in double to the shared expense account. Um, Some people like to do 50-50, right? I mean, even if their incomes are different, some people feel like, they should be contributing the same amount. Or sometimes they'll say like, oh, I pay rent and you pay for all the groceries. It literally as many possible ways as you can come up with. I think, you know, those can all work, but it really depends on the individuals that you're working with and what they can live with. Okay. And what happens if, let's say you're a couple that you're splitting things, basically everything's going in a joint bucket. It doesn't matter who earns Mm -hmm. what, everything's in that shared Mm -hmm. bucket. But one person is more frugal than the next person. So, Mm -hmm. you know, taking the charitable contributions, one wants to make Mm -hmm. a lot of charitable contributions. And let's say the other person doesn't have any hobbies they want to spend on significantly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're talking directly to my to my soul here, Elliot, because this is this is the challenge (laughs) of my household is that, you know, one of us is more frugal than the other, Um, even though everything. 
everything's totally merged. You know, we, we don't have separate finances, but, um, but I, you know, we don't spend similarly. Um, and I think, again, that just comes back to um, setting, setting some guidelines around it and also checking in with each other. So this actually, this conversation literally happened in my house last night um, where, I mean, we probably haven't reviewed, we do review our spending together typically once a year. So actually my favorite thing for couples to do is to sit down with the credit card year end statement and go through it together. I love credit card year and statements. I think they are endlessly fascinating, um, but it's super eye-opening to go through that together because usually what you find in the credit card year and statement is not what you expect, right? It's like, oh yeah, we spend X thousand dollars a month and then you get the credit card year and statement and it's like, oh, actually the average is totally different from what we thought it was. Yeah. And then being able to go through the categories. So, you know, not every institution gives you a really nice breakdown, but most of them do. So you get, you know, this is how much we spent on groceries for an entire year. And so that's a really good opportunity, I think, to check in with each other and say, like, does this still make sense? Do we need to make any modifications? And like I said, last night, I mean, there was a being totally transparent here. There was a conversation in my house about like, hey, you know, I've noticed your spending is your patterns have changed a little bit. And I think we should have a conversation about that. Um, so I don't think there's like a hard and fast rule about how to do it and what exactly the conversation looks like. But I do think having I th- once a year for sure, this like sit down, check in, discuss our spending and really take a close look at it. And, and just having that opportunity to provide some feedback to your partner in a way that is, you know, open and healthy and like, Hey, I just want to have a conversation, but I've noticed there's maybe something has shifted in your spending or maybe your income, you know, household income may have shifted. And like, that's an opportunity for the two of you to say like, okay, do we want to save more? Maybe this means we get a nicer car because we can afford it, you know, but having those check-in points, I think is incredibly valuable. Yeah. I really like the idea of the once a year check-in. I know whenever I've reviewed my spending, there are definitely some areas where I'm like, Oh, I spent a lot more there than I thought mm-hmm. I did. That that was wrong on my mm-hmm. part. Um, I'm curious if there are other sort of, we'll call them best practices here on, you know, an annual check-in. Do you recommend a quarterly check-in or, you know, setting aside a certain time of each week or, yeah. you know, just what would be your suggestions there? And I know it's different for every couple, right. but just for people who are listening, some ideas. I think yearly is a minimum requirement. I also think it's kind of dictated by how tight your budget is, right? If you're on a really tight budget, you probably do need to be checking in with each other monthly, right? You should probably be sitting down and reviewing and just making sure things aren't getting out of whack um, pretty, pretty regularly. If you have a fair bit of buffer in your budget, you know, your income is such that you, you know, you don't have to watch your pennies quite so closely, you know, you might be able to get away with once a year. Um, I also think if you're fairly new to this, if this is something that you haven't ever done before, it might make sense to do it more often, like maybe quarterly, um, until you sort of maybe have an established rhythm and you feel like, okay, we kind of have an idea how things are working. Um, I do think annual is adequate for many people. Um, but I think if your budget is, um, if you're watching things really closely, you probably need to check in more often than that. So, so I would probably not do anything more often than monthly because I think it's just too much of a burden to expect people to sit down like once a week and look at their spending. That's, I don't think anybody's got time for that. I certainly don't. <laughs> yeah. It's a good way to burn out quickly. Mm-hmm. And in the past, I mean, I used to track 
every single household expenditure for my house. You know, I knew exactly where, how much we spent on eating out and how much we spent on coffees and all of that for, I mean, I could break it down for any time period really, but I checked in with it probably close to weekly. And those days are long past. Like just realistically, I don't have that kind of time anymore. So I also think um, being realistic about what you can actually maintain on an ongoing basis. Um, And so for me, it's, it's annually. (laughs) I would love to check in more often, but I just, you know, practically speaking, don't have the, the time to sit down as consistently as I'd like. Yeah. That's really important to pick something that you can stick with, you know, less frequent is okay. As long as you can stick Mm -hmm. with that less frequent Mm -hmm. check-in. Exactly. I'm, I'm curious if you, if you don't mind sharing how, how has your sort of check-in evolved over time? You've mentioned a couple of things Mm -hmm. so far and knowing, you know, down weekly to what we were spending on things and that has shifted for someone listening now, like what, what would you expect for a new relationship? What does that look like for you? Just as a a point of comparison, people like those points of comparison, Mm -hmm. even if they're not relevant to their own life whatsoever. Mm -hmm. It has definitely evolved. Like I said, I mean, I think pre, pre having children, I had a lot more free time to do things like that. Um, I would say we definitely checked in as a couple much more often in the past. Also just based on time, we also have, a pretty good breakdown of duties. And I think that's very normal for most couples. You know, not everybody is looking at everything all the time. I mean, I look at my credit card every single morning um, just to see, you know, is there anything strange going on or whatever? So whereas my husband, I don't think hardly ever looks at the credit card, but he has a monthly thing where he sits down with a spreadsheet and looks at all his investment accounts. And, you know, so we're kind of both monitoring different things in different um, timeframes. I do think, you know, as far as us coming together and really sitting down and reviewing together, that is really the annual. And I mean, I would love to do it more often, but um, I mean, there's lots of little check-ins like, hey, I noticed something on the credit card or gee, our utility bill seemed really high this month or something, you know, some things do come up um, here and there. But in terms of like a really dedicated sit down meeting, that's definitely once a year. But I do like the fact that we are both monitoring different things in different capacities. And, you know, I pay all the bills, I do all that kind of stuff. So my husband has very little kind of regular um, oversight into that kind of stuff. But I think it really does help to just have an understanding of like, who's doing what, how often is it happening? um, And, you know, making sure that nothing's falling through the cracks. Were those assigned duties, for lack of better words? Like, did you have a formal conversation and say, hey, I'm doing this, you're doing that? Or did they just naturally evolve over time? Um, I actually really can't remember because <laughs> I've been married for almost 19 years. So I'm like, <laughs> gosh, probably at the beginning we did have a conversation. I can't explicitly remember that. I do remember having conversations about merging bank accounts. I do remember having conversations about sort of that setting that spending limit Um, And this, I alluded to having an allowance, uh, quote unquote, allowance for a period of time. So those conversations we absolutely had, I don't really remember us saying, you know, you're going to pay the bills and you're going to do this. Um, I I think we probably did. Uh, It's just been so long. I can't really remember the exact details. But I think, you know, the more that you can have these conversations and be explicit about it, the better. So there is, I don't think there's any such thing as too much sharing or too much conversation around the household finances because it can go off the rails so easily. And I think we see that so often with our clients where people come in with, 
you know, resentment and frustration. And it's just, they're not communicating well together. And like I said, I actually really love having these conversations with clients because I think it's a great opportunity to sort of, okay, we're all here. Everybody's got a seat at this table. Like let's, let's air those frustrations and then find a way to move forward. Um, Cause I think in day-to-day life, like if you're not having those conversations, you're not checking in with each other. Um, it's just so easy for things to get, um, yeah, stopped up and um, go in a, in a direction that's not positive. I hear you there. I, I want to pause there for a moment, Danica, and sort of go down that path because I feel like in a lot of relationships, sometimes people let things sort of spiral out of control or mm-hmm. whatever language you want to use, let things go on longer than they mm-hmm. should. And they're coming to these conversations with a lot more stress, anxiety, mm-hmm. anger, whatever you want to call mm-hmm. it. For someone who's not working with a financial planner, how would you suggest they approach that conversation when it's probably, everybody's recognized it's probably gone on a little bit too mm-hmm. long, but they do want to talk mm-hmm. about it? With regards to spending specifically or just sort of general finance? Either. Mm-hmm. Gosh, um, I really do think having a third party can be extremely helpful in this regard just for the objectivity. That doesn't mean that you need to have a third party, but it I do think it's much easier when there is somebody to sort of navigate and help steer that conversation. But if it's just two people, I mean, I think, you know, at a at a very high level, you can sit down and say, okay, what do what is the issue? What are we trying to solve for? and give each person the opportunity to share. I mean, that's ultimately what we're doing, right? As third parties, it's like, okay, I want to make sure everybody has a chance to say what they think. And then everybody has a chance to say like, okay, how are we going to resolve this? And then it might take a while, right? So again, the benefit of having a third party is they can sort of sometimes step in and like maybe steer the conversation. But ultimately, it's really just about making sure everybody has a chance to say, you know, to air their, maybe air their frustrations, say what they would like to see happen. And then it's about, you know, create, co-creating um, a solution or an outcome that everybody involved can, can feel comfortable with, not just live. I mean, it's not just like, okay, I don't want to find a solution that like you really hate, but is sort of the lesser of all evils. Like ideally you want to find something that everybody's like, okay, yeah, I'm on board with this solution. And like, I can get behind this and this makes sense to me. Um, it can be hard in some cases to find that middle ground. Um, but I think that's basically what you're trying to do. If you're doing it on your own, you're just, you don't have the benefit of, um, somebody that can steer the conversation. I I loved the language you use, the co-creating a solution that people are happy with Mm -hmm. and can move forward Mm -hmm. with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I heard somebody else, um, use that language, another financial planner about coming up with, um, it wasn't regarding spending, but just coming up with something that, you know, everybody everybody can live with, everybody's happy with more or less. And it was really about this sort of like co-creation, which I thought was really just a really nice way of thinking about the work that we do. Particularly for spending and being on different pages, being able to co-create that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I, you know, one of the things that I also like about working with clients is that, um, you know, with couple clients that maybe don't have as much um, opportunity to, or they haven't really done this on their own, sat down and, and reviewed spending, for example. And so often I'll see in a meeting, you know, somebody will share something about their spending and the other person has absolutely no idea. Like I had no idea that this happened recently in a meeting of mine, no idea the kid's horseback 
writing lessons were that expensive. And it wasn't a good or a bad. It was just a, wow, that is a significant part of our budget. And it was like, that's probably a good thing for both people to know that they're spending so much money on horseback riding. Not doesn't mean they're going to change it, but it was just that awareness. Um, So I think that's just kind of a fun part of it is just being able to, to witness and participate in, you know, everybody really having a good understanding of, of spending in particular, just because it, it leads into so many other things that we do. For sure. And that, that is a natural point because we've talked a lot about spending, but what about, and it's sort of on the same page, but what about saving or investing if people aren't on the same page there? And maybe, maybe we start with saving just because it's most closely related to spending and sort of how you get people on the same page mm-hmm, there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say the saving conversations are very similar to the spending conversations. So, you know, establishing what makes sense for the household. Um, and you know, I think that one's a little bit easier from the perspective of, you know, we can sort of take a step back and say like, well, you need to save X amount to sort of reach your goals or whatever. And then it's a little bit easier to sort of say like, okay, well, we just have to figure out like which accounts to save to and all the rest of it. Um, and then once the savings is in a great place, ideally, I don't actually care that much about your spending, right? So, I mean, I, I do care. It's important to understand exactly where the money is going. But, you know, at the end of the day, like I don't actually care about how much you spend on, you know, spa treatments or mountain biking or whatever it is that you're, you know, that you're spending your money on. Like, I don't need to to know the details of that, but I do care a lot about the savings number. And so I think when we can sort of establish that, that also can give people a little bit more freedom on the spending side. Um, but I, I think the savings conversation is usually a little bit easier um, for most people. Where it gets hard is when people don't have a lot of flexibility in their budget again. So say their income is on the lower side, and their expenses are high and you know they just maybe can't save as much as they'd like to. And so that's um, a more challenging conversation for sure. How do you approach those trade-offs? Like maybe the budget's not necessarily tight, but you know, one person would like to travel four times a year and one person is comfortable traveling once. And so they're saving towards different goals or one's perfectly fine retiring later and another wants to retire mm-hmm. early. Mm-hmm. Are those similar conversations as the the spending? I think they are. They might have bigger ramifications. You know, if somebody wants to retire 10 years earlier than the other one, that's a really big discrepancy. Um, it's not insurmountable, but it's that's a very big difference versus, say, like, you know, a couple hundred dollars a month in spending um, that maybe we need to just make sure everybody's on board with. Um, so I do think that there are... Um, some very big picture conversations that, you know, that could take a while to really dig into all that stuff and and find a place that everybody's um, comfortable with in terms of moving forward. But I do think that it's ultimately the same process. Um, I just think it's that some of those conversations could be so big and so impactful that that's not going to happen in a one hour call where you're talking about how much to spend on eating out versus travel. But I think at the end of the day, what it comes back to, and, you know, you and I have done a lot of this same type of work with life planning and um, really establishing um, what's what's important to people and also what brings them joy. So I think it sort of all comes back to whether it's spending or setting goals or talking about sort of long term, you know, projections and expectations. 
the, the ultimate thing is we want to make sure that this is something that is, you know, fulfilling for both people in the, the relationship. And sometimes that does mean like, yeah, one person might travel alone because the other person doesn't like to travel. I mean, there's all sorts of different um, permutations of how that might play out. But I think ultimately we're, we're trying to reconcile two people's um, sometimes slightly differing visions and sometimes drastically differing visions. Yeah. Well said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the, the challenge is, I mean, I'm really into this idea of capacity right now or, or creating space, but the challenge is to be able to hold space for both people's vision, right? Yeah. So if you're a couple listening to this, how do you hold that capacity? I think there's a couple ways that I would think about going into a conversation like this with your partner, um, particularly if it's just the two of you. Um, one is just to just be present. Um, and so that means, you know, if you're sitting down to have an important conversation with your partner, maybe you put your phone in another room or, you know, you don't want to be having this sort of fairly intimate, um, you know, or challenging conversation while also scrolling through your phone or getting notifications or anything like that. So just being really, um, 100% present to your partner to be able to, um, allow them to, to share things like what's important to them. Um, so that I would say being present is definitely one thing. The other is, and this is something I am definitely still working on, so I'm no expert. Um, but I think sort of assuming the best of your partner and, um, doing as much as you can not to jump to conclusions, right? So it's very easy to just sort of assume what somebody means, um, or automatically just have even an an initial reaction when you hear something, Um, but sort of reserving as much as you can, reserving sort of initial judgment. Um, And and I really like to ask questions like, well, what does that mean to you? So for instance, like, let's just say as an example, I was sitting down with my husband and he's like, oh, well, I, you know, I really want to buy a vacation house. I don't know. That's a just a possible thing that we might discuss. And then I, you know, one question that I could ask is, what is that? What does that mean for you? Or what does that provide for you? Um, because what his what he's thinking about, you know, my initial reaction might be, oh, my gosh, we can't afford a vacation house or that's crazy or something. But once you dig into understanding where that's coming from and what he's trying to achieve, I think that allows you to connect and have um, a, hopefully a more productive conversation about it. Because, you know, I, I can definitely recall instances in my relationship where we might have had a conversation and we think we totally agree, like, oh, yeah, I think this makes sense. I think this makes sense. But what it meant to each of us was totally different. And so that was really eye opening. Actually, I can recall it happening very clearly when we were planning our wedding. And, you know, things like, oh, yeah, I want a small wedding. I want a small wedding. Cool. We're on the same page. Done. And we just thought we could move on. But what we didn't ask was, what does a small wedding mean to you? Because it meant very different things to each of us. Right. And so I think when you can go in to any kind of conversation with um, with curiosity and just sort of like, okay, well, I want to understand how you're thinking about that and why it's important to you and all the rest of it, instead of just being like, you know, a vacation house. Well, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard. That's not going to help anybody. Right. So, um, you know, being as, as open and reserving judgment as you possibly can. I love what you said about curiosity and approaching it with that and just doing your best to ask those questions. Like, what does that mean for you? What does that provide for you? Cause I, I know it comes from a different mm-hmm. 
different place for people. Mm-hmm. It absolutely does. Cause all of these things, you know, we are bringing our own, our own history and our own judgment to everything. Um, and it's almost impossible to know what your partner's bringing to the same conversation. Right. I mean, we have some pretty good ideas about like how, how, what sort of household we grew up in and things like that. Um, but I do think asking those, those questions just to really uncover a little bit more about what is driving some of these, you know, desires or wishes, especially when you're talking about really big stuff, like, you know, where are we going to live in retirement or where are we going to live in general or, you know, just all these really important things. Like, um, that's such a big part of it is to know, like, where is your partner coming from and what, what are those things providing for them? Yeah. Well, well said. Where, where else do you see couples commonly have disputes or differences of opinion? Investing. Let's go there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, Again, very common for people to not have the same sort of risk tolerance or comfort level. One person might be very savvy about investing and the other person might not have a clue. Um, And so I think, again, you know, one of the benefits, I mean, this is a place where I think working with a financial planner is absolutely um, highly recommended because um, it can really set up some dynamics that um, are hard for, for people to navigate on their own, particularly when one person is much more well-versed than the other. So if one person is really savvy and does all kinds of investing on their own and the other person just doesn't know what an ETF is or doesn't doesn't know what a stock is, and it's like it really sets up kind of a power dynamic that I think is would be hard to navigate without professional help. Um, but it's the same ultimate concept is kind of, you know, Um, how are we going to bridge the gap, especially if it's a significant one? And one thing that I do find can be helpful for couples where there is somebody that does like to say actively trade and buy individual stocks and things like that is to say, okay, here's this account with X dollars in it. You go ahead and trade all you want and buy the things and do whatever you would like in that account. But then we still need to have, you know, more of a cohesive plan for, the bigger investment portfolio. So that's kind of like one little um, strategy that you might employ where there's a a person in the couple that really likes to do sort of more active um, trading. It's just to sort of give them, give them a whole account and like, you know, have your way, um, but then have a a more um, intentional strategy around the, the bigger portfolio. But there's all sorts of things that you run into with, you know, one person is really, really aggressive. The other person is very conservative. And, you know, again, there's a variety of ways of, of managing that, whether it's, you know, we meet in the middle or maybe one person's 401k is really aggressive and the other person's 401k is really conservative. And we just kind of, you know, understand that um, we're going to handle them a little bit more as, um, as individual portfolios. So there's a lot of, a lot of possibilities there, but I think the ultimate issues are basically the same. What what suggestions would you give? You started talking about this at the beginning of like one person is maybe in charge of it or knows a lot, the other person doesn't. And obviously that it you know, that leads to a power imbalance today, but also with the types of clients I work with, that leads to a lot of potential problems later on if someone passes away before the other and the other person hasn't been involved at all. How do you get people, you know, maybe this isn't something they want to do regularly. What, what do you think sort of like the bare minimum that people should be doing to sort of get on the same page or have some education around it? 
I have a lot of thoughts about this and um, I feel very strongly that everybody in the couple should have a basic understanding of what the household finances look like. Now you could interpret that very loosely, right? So basic understanding of the household finances could mean a lot of things. Um, But I think at a fundamental level, knowing what you have and where it is, is critical because, I mean, I think as planners, we've all seen situations where say, you know, one person was managing the household finances and the other person had not only no idea where things were, but no idea how much they had, um, no idea how much like the mortgage payment is. And then if there's a crisis and this other person has to step in, they are completely out of their league. So I really think it's critical for everybody in the house to have just a really basic understanding of like, okay, this is you know, where our accounts are, where you can find that information, how you can get access to them, and also just kind of a, a basic understanding of sort of your household expenses. You know, again, can be super high level, um, but I think if you don't have sort of an operational understanding of what's happening with the household finances, I think it can be, it can lead to some pretty significant problems. Um, on the investing side, I don't feel like everybody in the household needs to be super savvy and super educated about how the accounts are structured and, and all of that. I do think knowing where things are is still important, but I think if one person is really into the investing and the other person is like, I'm going to take a big backseat on this one, you know, as long as you, you know how to get access, you know where things are, and you're more or less on the same page about how to manage everything. I don't think both people need to be kind of in there messing with stuff and and understand exactly how everything is structured. Um, But I do think a basic understanding of where things are, what you have, how to get access, um, that's just not negotiable as far as I'm concerned. I'm there with you. You know, knowing where things are is a a first key step in case a crisis does hit because inevitably, probably at some point, a crisis will happen. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, nobody ever thinks it's going to happen to them, but um, you know, whether it's divorce or death or just even just an illness, um, where you know one person isn't as available to to do the things that they've been doing, um, can can really throw things um, into, into a bit of chaos if there's not a pretty good basic understanding across the the couple. So before we shift gears sort of to the end here, where I like to ask every podcast guest the same question, are there other types of things where you see couples go wrong in their communication or their finances and how best to bridge that gap, best practices, tips, anything else? I'm not sure that there's anything else that I would add other than the things that we've already talked about. Um, I do think that there, you know, there's a lot of couples that would benefit not only from working with a financial planner, but potentially working with a couples therapist. Um, I have personally engaged with a couples therapist um, in the past and found it to be super helpful. And that just can be a really good, um, you know, sort of like um, maintenance type of thing. That's kind of how we viewed it in our relationship. But it was a really good opportunity to just sort of say like, are we still communicating? Are we still doing the right things? So I think something like that can be um, a really critical piece of it, depending on your, you know, your individual circumstances. Um, but I think just the 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 framework, the slash guardrails, you know, having those sorts of things in place that everybody feels comfortable with, and having open and honest communication is just those two things are 
really the most the most important things you can do i think yeah great and i love the advice about therapy as well um i find that's helped a lot of people over the years and people are talking about it more which is amazing individual therapy couples therapy can't go wrong <laughs> it's all good <laughs> Well, good. Well, I appreciate everything. I want to wrap up, Danica, with something that I ask every podcast guest, and that is, what is one act of kindness that's been transformational in your life? I knew you were going to ask this, um, and I, I I don't know if I have a really good answer. There have been so many little acts of kindness. I, I don't know if I have a um, you know sort of earth-shattering one that I've heard some other guests share of you know something really major. But I think there have been so many people along the way um, in my journey who have provided um, encouragement and support that I just don't think that I would be where I am today without all of that. So, so many, on, literally on a daily basis, um, the, um, the wisdom that I get from other people, both professionally and personally, um, but just being lifted up by so many people on a regular basis is... I, I can't even put it into words. Those little kindnesses that I am afforded um, all the time um, just keep me afloat. Um, so I, I can't think of one um, really significant thing. Uh, I'm sure there are plenty that are just not coming to mind. But there's so many small, small acts that cumulatively um, have added up to be pretty pretty incredible. Yeah. It sounds like those small acts have been very transformational and being able to lift you up on a daily basis. Exactly. Good. Well, I really appreciate you joining today and sharing your wisdom and allowing people to learn from you. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Elliot. Elliot Apple is an investment advisor representative of Kindness Financial Planning, LLC. However, in hosting this podcast, Elliot is not acting as an investment advisor representative individually or on behalf of Kindness Financial Planning. The information and opinions in this podcast are for general, informational, and educational purposes only and should not be considered investment, financial, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and such opinions are subject to change. No representation is made as to the completeness or accuracy of the information presented. Any past performance referenced is historical and no guarantee of future results. All indices referenced are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. All investments involve a certain level of risk. You should carefully consider if an investment is suitable for you before making an investment. Please consult your legal, financial, and other professionals to determine what may be appropriate for you.